Hi, this is Reverend Andrew. Uh, you're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are now hosted by Anchor, our new platform. And this is a re-release, this episode, uh, of one of our earliest episodes with Dr. Jack Kilcrease, who came on the podcast to discuss Protestant scholasticism, uh, which was an academic theological movement in the 17th century, not long after the Reformation, our theologians employed the scholastic method in order to clarify and to further spell out uh, Protestant belief, both in the Lutheran and Reformed traditions. We explore such uh, historical figures in this episode, such as Jan Gerhard, as well as going back to even Philip Melanchthon, who, uh, through his book, Losi Communis, uh, really set the trend for the next several centuries of how systematic theological writings uh, were composed. And so uh, thank you for tuning in, and we will go ahead and get to the episode. God bless. first episode and we have tonight we have Dr. Jack Kilcrease. Uh, he holds a PhD in systematic theology and ethics from Marquette University and he serves as an associate professor of historical and systematic theology at Institute of Lutheran Theology um, which is if you don't have never heard of it you need to have heard of it. Um, put that on your radar. It has a social media presence. Um, it's a fine school. Uh, I'm a student there, uh, uh, studying post-MDiv graduate study in theology. <clears throat> Dr. Kilcrease also serves as the adjunct professor of philosophy at Aquinas College, where I hear many of his students think he is a Roman Catholic. Is that true? Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, he has written for several theological journals, Concordia, Theological Quarterly, I'm not going to be able to get through all of them, but these are some of the big ones. Concordia Theological Quarterly, Journal of Ecclesiastical History, as well as several great articles from uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's 500th anniversary of the Reformation blog. I believe it was called Lutheran Reformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Lutheran Reformation. Um, <clears throat> he is the author of the books, The Doctrine of the Atonement from Luther to Ferdy, and the self-donation of God. He's also contributed to chapters and articles in several books, including Encyclopedia of Martin Luther and the Reformation, How to Understand Sacred Scriptures, and of course, Aquinas Among the Protestants, in which he wrote a chapter on Protestant classicism in the 17th century. And that's actually what tonight's episode is gonna really zero in on and focus. You can visit his website, Jack Kilcrease, and so that's two K's. You got uh, Jack and then K-I-L-C-R-E-A-S-E dot com to see his blog posts, recorded lectures, and a more full list of his works um, and contributions, um, more than what I just gave here. Uh, so, Dr. Kilcrease, can I call you Jack during this? That's fine. Mm -hmm. I was a professor, so I, and I dare not call him Jack in those sessions, but... Call you Jack tonight. Um, 
uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks uh, for having me. Yes, um, and we're recording on Zoom, so if there, I'm hope, hoping there's no kind of talking over. Uh, I, I'm going to try to give a pause, and we're going to we're both going to do our best to give each other pauses. And I've listened to podcasts before that they've done on Zoom. Great audio quality, but sometimes you get a little bit of a lag. And listeners, if they're really dedicated, they put up with it. So, so Jack, tell me about what got you interested in the study of theology. Uh, probably uh, the fact that my father was a minister. Uh, that had a lot to do with it. I was also, uh, when I was younger, very interested in uh, world religions and uh, then that got me interested in studying my own religion. Uh, so, and then in turn got me interested in doing theology. Um, I always felt like, a, I guess I could say, an acute need to work things out, um, to have, so to speak, have my kind of intellectual ducks in a row uh, and believe what was really real. And so it made, made me like a really... Uh, strong desire to intensely study uh, the history of theology and all the possible options. So I, I, I guess that's uh, where, how I, where I come to it from. So. Thank you. Um, well, I, I, having you, having had you as a professor, I definitely, um, you know, I, pre, I, I see that and I appreciate that because the study of his church history or, you know, the, the, subtitle of our podcast is Protestant Historical Theology. Um, and that's not to the exclusion, of course, of Catholic voices. We have, actually, there's a Catholic person we may have on the show in the future. But um, it, we're, we're really trying to uh, cover kind of an area uh, that there may not be a lot of coverage on. Um, and so, but I definitely uh, ha have seen that in your, uh, in the guidance and teaching, um, that I've had, uh, that, that I've had under you as a student. And if you study the, the history of the church, you do see what Dr. Kilkerson, I mean, options. Um, it, it just amazed me. Uh, we, I got a little bit of that in seminary. I had no formal theological education before my MDiv studies. But once I got a little bit of it in seminary, but once um, I took classes like taught by Dr. Kilcrease at ILT, I really saw how in the 2000 year history of the church, I guess you do have a lot of uh, what you could say options. Um, you have uh, basically everything under the sun has been discussed or brought to light or been debated or been discussed Um by, you know, and, and so it's very fascinating kind of the dialogical uh, relationship uh, between between the different currents it, within the developments of theology as it's taken place over the course of the history of the church. Um, so I definitely feel you there. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's, that's uh, so uh, now tell us about fast forwarding. I guess it was 2019, this book was published. Tell us about your interest. Well, and it goes back before that, obviously, mm -hmm. but your interest in writing what you did for the book Aquinas Among the Protestants. Well, um, one area that I'm very interested in is um, 
obviously the history of Lutheran theology being a Lutheran theologian, but um, uh, I'm, I'm extremely interested in the history of what's called scholastic orthodoxy. And it's a period between roughly, um, well, you could, uh, you could say the, at the time of the formula of Concord through um, around about 1725 or so when there's an attempt on the part of um, Protestants to kind of institutionally establish themselves. They take over, in many ways, rather large swaths of uh, Northern Europe and they need to provide uh, textbooks, uh, catechetical materials and commentaries for uh, pastors and they need to train methods for training them in their seminaries. They also need to um, respond to the resurgent Catholic Church uh, after what might be called the Catholic Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, um, which uh, used a kind of renewed scholastic method uh, of this, this method of sort of carefully coordinating faith and reason, I guess you could say, uh, as a apologetic against Protestantism. And um, what, what they ended up doing is essentially uh, not only combining kind of the humanistic evangelical learning of the Reformation, which focused on very close readings of biblical texts in the original languages um, and significantly modifying the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the sacraments, and the doctrine of the church, but pretty much leaving everything else alone. Um, with the earlier scholastic theology of the Middle Ages, um, which had a whole variety of options. Uh, it really begins with uh, Philip Melanchthon and his recognition at Wittenberg that uh, it's fine to modify the doctrines of uh, salvation and the sacraments and so forth, but you would need to provide a, uh, what's called a, the corpus doctrina, the, the body of doctrine to your students. Uh, and for that, you then have to start going back and, and ransacking the earlier history of the church uh, for models to be able to do this. Um, what I find interesting is uh, this sort of um, dialectical continuity then that gets set up between uh, the Reformation, that something that, for example, a figure like, um, or a historian like Michael Oberman points out that, that the reformers themselves are utilizing models of teaching that they find in the earlier tradition. In fact, um, to, to the extent that they offered philosophical ideas, for example, they usually just fell back on the ones that they had learned. Um, or if you look at Luther's uh, late um, disputational writings uh, on the two natures in Christ or the Trinity and things like this, uh, he obviously has some original contributions, but mainly he uses models from Occamism, which is what he was trained at the University of Erfurt. Uh, but the, the, the Protestant scholastics go back and do this, and they ransack the earlier tradition and actually combine it together in some very um, interesting and kind of eclectic ways um, in order to uh, present what they consider to be uh, biblical um, doctrine. And I find that very interesting. I find, um, uh, I, I guess... What theologically I find interesting about it is that though I think the uh, Reformation makes it a fine contribution in the sense of saying that you go back to the Bible read from the perspective of the gospel as a kind of critical principle, because by the, this point in, the, in church history, essentially you have a lot of different options and you're going to have to come up with a critical principle. Now the Roman Catholic Church comes up with a critical principle and that is the Pope gets to decide what parts of the tradition end up being right and which ones are wrong. 
Um, but as we can, as I think um, uh, Protestants of all stripes see, would see, uh, that's a very problematic uh, position, not only because of its lack of theological and historical justification, uh, but also because, again, there's kind of a tendency of becoming tyrannical in, uh, in the ways that medieval, late medieval and early Renaissance popes certainly were. Um, and also for the theological reason, of course, because of the ultimate authority of scripture. And so treating scripture uh, as an, the ultimate authority is important, but it, it's ultimately important to recognize uh, theology as always kind of functioning within a tradition, um, within a particular paradigm. It doesn't mean, of course, that the tradition has equal weight to scripture or uh, any more than, for example, a scientific paradigm has equal weight to the actual facts of nature or something like that. Um, but it does mean that we always read things through a kind of grid and through various uh, traditions. And it's always interesting to me how, in light of people's study of scripture, they, they um, particularly in the Lutheran realm, but also um, there's, there's other people who are doing this, uh, Anglican and different reform groups are doing this as well. But it's always interesting to me how uh, they appropriate bits and pieces of the earlier tradition as a means of explicating the biblical material. Um, and again, I kind of see myself as doing something uh, similar in my own um, systematic theology of taking bit, trying to take bits and pieces and utilizing them as ways of explicating the um, uh, the biblical material um, in a uh, kind of it's sometimes collect, uh, uh, somewhat eclectic kind of fashion. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, so, so basically, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how many higher education divinity schools, theological departments teach courses on, uh, Protestant scholasticism. I, I would bet to say that the class that I actually took, uh, under you and, um, Protestant classes, and of course, you taught at ILT at Institute of Lutheran Theology. That may be one of the very few. Uh, the Concordia seminaries might offer it. I don't know. Um, but basically, there, there's several narratives about Protestant scholasticism, and uh, well, not several. I guess it's not too many, but um, there, there's a, there's a couple different ones. And there's there's kind of the, the positive, um, the narrative kind of uh, that that you gave that see the, they see the, you know, the reformers had to address certain concerns. Um, the next generation of reformers or generations, right? So the people, a generation after Luther and Calvin and a gener another generation after them had to synthesize those concerns with the theology. I mean, the church had been around 1500 plus years. There's been an established, established theology, um, in place. And so they're, they're, they're pretty much kind of doing the heavy work of, of doing that. Um, so Prada and, and I'll be honest before I, before I took your class and I love your class, I always heard this kind of negative, I don't want to say disparaging, but this narrative about Protestant classism that was just, it was just, it was right after the reformation that Luther and Calvin, they were, all about, you know, they were um, alive with the spirit and wanted to change things that were wrong with the church. And um, they set it on a good course. And then a century later, or even less than, all these scholastic people with their very cut and dry uh, systematic um, 
uh, articulation of theology came in and they just made religion very almost like in a, a too much of a mental exercise, um, too dry, too um, very cold, you know. I'm, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, so it's, the air is kind of, it's overlooked. It's either overlooked or it's perhaps mischaracterized or it's, uh, or it's criticized whether, um, whether rightfully or not. Um, one of the narrative or one of the perhaps first mischaracterizations of it, according I know to you and to other scholars who have, who have really studied this era, uh, came from Albert Schweitzer in the central dogma theory. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, Alexander Schweitzer. Um, yes. Um, yeah. So uh, Alexander Schweitzer, he was a student of Schleiermacher's, um, a kind of, um, uh, what is it? Um, I guess a kind of, kind of moderate reformed Swiss theologian. And uh, he developed a theory called the central dogma theory. So central dogma theory, which posited that um, the Lutheran and reformed um, scholasticism each operated with what he called the central dogma, which is um, kind of central principle. Well, treating a, a central um, doctrine as a kind of uh, key to the entire doctrinal system, which you sort of deduce all the other doctrines from. So, so the case of the Reformed tradition, it was um, elect, the doctrine of election and uh, predestination. And for the Lutherans, it was justification by faith. Um, now, um, what he's essentially doing there is he's reading back a kind of 19th century Protestant way of doing theology, which really, in many ways in Protestantism, kind of ca- carries up to the present, um, of kind of saying, okay, well, we can't really trust in Scripture anymore, so, uh, or the, even the standard theistic arguments after Kant, really. And so what we're going to do is to say, well, there's really this essence to Christianity. There's this essence that's to be found in, in a central, in a kind of a central teaching. And then we can substitute that for the authority of scripture. So insofar as scripture may lend itself to that, we can say scripture is a witness to the true revelation of God. Maybe there's some other things in scripture which we don't think it necessarily witnesses to that reality. And so we could just say, well, that's either marginal or it's part of their culture or something along those lines. This really goes back to, um, all the way back to uh, Christian Wolff, the great protege of um, Leibniz. Leibniz, in terms of his, um, one of his proofs for God's existence was what was called the the principle of uh, necessary why am I, am I going blank? Um, of necess, of, of, I'm sorry, of sufficient reason. Uh, so, for example, uh, he said, well, if the universe exists, there has to be a sufficient reason for it to exist, just as, as there has to be a sufficient reason for the computer to exist or I exist and so forth. And so it points beyond itself to something else. And, the, and he used our, this way of arguing for God's existence. And so uh, Wolf takes this over and turns it into kind of an epistemic principle, not so much as an ontological principle, and says, um, Every system of thought is an outworking of a central principle, and the central principle is uh, the sufficient principle of sufficient reason for the system of thought. And so um, this then carries over then later on in uh, German rationalist thought and then ideal, German idealism into this idea of um, a, a kind of central principle and then carries over into theology and the idea of a central 
dogma. I mean, the difficulty, of course, with all this is that you're kind of reading a later Protestant method of doing theology into an earlier era. Um, the Protestant scholastics did talk about uh, principles of theology, but they used a kind of more of an Aristotelian model. Of, um, for, for Aristotle, um, knowledge, correct knowledge is derivative of um, syllogisms, a sil- you know, with a major premise, then a minor premise, and then a conclusion, right? You make a universal claim, you make a particular claim, you know, Socrates is uh, a man, minor premise, all men die, conclusion, Socrates will die. Now, the difficulty with, with, with this uh, is how do you know you get the right premises? Because you could say green is blue, Jimmy is green, Jimmy is blue, right? I mean, that's, that's a nonsense statement. It logically follows, but I mean, uh, the premises are nonsensical. So it's a sound argument, but not an accurate conclusion. Um, well, it's based, your, your, um, your premises have to be based on other syllogisms which in turn have to be based on other syllogisms, which have to be based on other syllogisms. And, and Aristotle said, well, look, you'd have to go on ad infinitum. There'd have to be an infinite regress of the syllogisms unless you had first principles, okay? So uh, at least in the area of uh, what he calls science, uh, knowledge that rests on deductions from certain principles, um, you have to have first principles. And so for the, process, the scholastics, uh, this has taken over then to two principles, a principle of being and then a principle of knowledge. Uh, so the principle of being is the triune God. Uh, so the triune God is the principle of being, okay? And then correlative of this, of course, is the principle of knowledge, which is the uh, holy scriptures. Um, and of course, again, they're correlative of each other because you wouldn't have holy scriptures communicating the reality of the triune God without having a triune God, right? So moreover, you wouldn't be able to know the triune God if you didn't have the holy scriptures. So, um, so that's actually how what they when they talk about the principles of theology, they don't talk about dogmas. They talk about God communicating Himself through His Word. So, uh, and in terms of um, again, that's also important that when they discuss individual doctrines, they are self-contained in individual treatises. They don't really have systematic theology in the way that modern people have systematic theology. In modern systematic theologies, you come up again with a central. Uh, principle, which then you work out systematically. For them, they have a body of doctrine, but the body of doctrine, again, is a collection usually following the form of the Apostles' Creed of individual treatises about different doctrines, but and maybe gathered together in a single book. But these are self-contained, and you can simply read them on their own. Um, and their arrangement, by the way, contrary to what a lot of modern scholarship has claimed, is completely arbitrary. Completely arbitrary. There's, there's no significance whatsoever, for example, that they put the doctrine of the divine nature and attributes before the doctrine of the Trinity. They're not trying to downplay the Trinity or something. It's just it's, no. it's a matter of contention. So. Um, so what you're talking about right now actually brings me to my next point I was going to ask you. Um, so kind of that central dogma theory, you know, Lutherans are all about justification. Um, Calvinists are all about predestination. Now, to be honest with you, I remember when I was taking your class, I, uh, you know, the first thing, I'll be honest, and this isn't bad in itself. The first thing I think of when I think of Lutheranism is the justification, justification by faith alone. Mm-hmm. And I love that doctrine. Um, I love that dogma, whatever you want to call it. I, I mean, that's, it speaks, of course, I was, you know, um, 
though I'm an Episcopal priest, for those who know me, I was raised in Missouri Synod. And, um, and uh, you know, if you, if, uh, you haven't really read what justification by faith alone, I, mean, I, I imagine a lot of our listeners will know what justification by faith alone means. But it is the most, you know, God justifying the ungodly is one of the, uh, it speaks to me, speaks uh, truly to my heart. Um, so when I think of Lutherans, I think of that. When I think of uh, Calvinists, I, or Reformed, I guess you could say, I think of predestination, which I'll raise this some problem. I mean, just on a very, uh, very common, very, very, you know, basic level. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, when they, when they hear about predestination, especially double predestination, I guess I'll say that. Um, so, but yeah, I think you did. I mean, thank you for, for clarifying that. I think the central dogma theory, um, work from you, work from scholars like Richard Muller, um, have, have really uh, debunked that kind of, you know, that was not in the minds of these 17th century scholasticians um, as they were writing these compendiums, as they were um, writing these, basically these, these large works um, for the, for basically the use of academic theology, Uh, which brings me to my next point. Um, You know, this is not you know, so Luther and Calvin, they come in and do what they do in the 16th century. And then we look at 17th century with Protestant classicism. And that kind of negative narrative said, oh, there's a gulf between the two. Well, if you start to really look at the history, there's not so much of that gulf. Um, we look at, we, we can see in the example of Philip Melanchthon, who was the kind of right-hand man, I guess for simplistic, you know, we could simplistically say, of Martin Luther. In fact, I just read the other day that they lived together. They had a, they, they, both of their residents, uh, where they were next to each other. The kids used to play together in the front yard. Um, I mean, Melanchthon, I mean, they were contemporaries, obviously, but they were, um, colleagues, contemporaries and Philip Melanchthon. Um, if you know the book of Concord, especially for Lutherans out there, that's your, that's your book. Uh, Melanchthon was the primary author, or at least I know the formula well, not the form, but the Augsburg Confession. And um, so Melanchthon is very much a father of Lutheranism as much as Martin is, at least of what we know as Lutheranism today. And, and Melanchthon wrote an academic work called, and I might butcher the Latin here, and, and Jack can correct me if uh, I do, but Sadus Doctrinaire. Did I say that right? Well, I um Oh, uh, that was the method. Doctrina is 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 how you get to the. Uh, yes, yeah, that was the right. Um, you want to share just a little bit about that work by Melanchthon? Oh, the Lutheran communities. Okay, so um, uh, Melanchthon um, recognizes early on about 1521, that the, the Reformation is going to do dogmatic textbooks. And so he starts, uh, he writes a brief compendium on theology, which he structures around the Book of Romans, Lusai Communis. Now, Lusai Communis, Communis Theologicae, or Lusai Communis Theologicae, that's the full title, which just means theological commonplaces or theological topics. Uh, and he develops a theory about how you do systematic theology or dogmatics, on the basis of a, um, a, a, a certain form of Renaissance rhetorical criticism, 
um, that goes back to a 15th century German humanist named Rudolf Agricola. Agricola was interested in the history of rhetoric and how you argue in an appropriate way. And he devised an idea that you would go through the great uh, treatises on rhetoric uh, by the Romans and you would pick out the best arguments. And they, 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 he called these sedis uh, rhetorica, meaning the seats of rhetoric. Now, uh, Erasmus uh, adapted this a bit when he studied the Bible, and Mike then refined it further. And so he developed this idea called Cetist Doctrina. Uh, the Cetist Doctrina are the seats of doctrine. Uh, these are the clear, grammatically clear passages that deal with the individual doctrines of the faith. Um, now, um, we might be tempted to say, well, this, this constitutes, you, what you have to do is you essentially gather these um, see the stuff trying to together and allow them to kind of mutually interpret one another. And um, out of that pops your doctrine, right? Um, it, it, it's helpful because it isolates the specific biblical material. And it also, by allowing the text to kind of mutually interpret each other, sort of um, curbs interpreters' tendency of reading their own ideas into individual texts. Um, now, you, you could be critical of this by claiming that it was a form of proof texting, which I know has kind of a bad name in modern Protestant <laughs> theology. But what has to be understood is that uh, these are not, these individual passages are not simply ripped out of context or something. Um, one mistake that modern interpreters of the process scholastics make is that they uh, read their dogmatic works in isolation from their uh, exegetical works. And their exegetical works, uh, they discuss all these passages within the wider context of the book themselves. So they don't just rip them out of context. They, they determine a meaning for it within the wider context of the overall book using very, very fine grammatical and um, uh, rhetorical uh, methods of, um, uh, I'd say, uh, uh, interpretation. Um, so, so anyways, so... Uh, Melanchthon, for the rest of his life, uh, kept on expanding and expanding on this. So initially, he says in his Loci Communis Theologicae of 1521, well, I, you know, I don't want to talk about the Trinity or other things like this um, because it's too speculative. I'm just going to focus on soteriology. And this is the great emphasis of the Reformation. Uh, um, you reject medieval Catholic soteriology, essentially, in favor of justification by faith, right? And, of course, then you have the corollaries of this. Uh, of doctrine sacraments, uh, and of course, then also the doctrine of the church. But everything else doesn't really change that much. Uh, even something like the doctrine of predestination, well, plenty of people in the Middle Ages believed in predestination. Augustine did, right? This is actually not a point of contra controversy between, um, uh, for example, Thomas and Calvinus, as much as they disagreed about everything else, because they basically had the same doctrine of predestination. At least the Dominicans did. Um, so Melanchthon then realizes this, as students start showing up to Wittenberg, as I mentioned earlier, that you have to present them with a full body of doctrine. So not just soteriological issues, but now also doctrines of Trinity and things like this. And then he, so that for this reason, as I mentioned earlier, he has to start going back and, and ransacking the earlier tradition. And um, so he can give lengthier descriptions of these various um, doctrines. Uh, in these sort of self-contained treatises, these loci communis, these individual little treatises, which are made up of the Cetus Doctrina. So these are really important key kind of concepts about how you do dogmatics. This is for this reason, too. Um, 
Lutheran and Reformed dogmatics in the 17th century and the early 18th century uh, took on um, basically this, this model. In fact, uh, every uh, Reformed Lutheran systematic theology from Melanchthon till the early 18th century is called Lose Communis Theologicae. They all have the same names. Uh, and they use this method. So Melanchthon, uh, Heinrich Hempa, was a great student of Protestant classicism in the uh, uh, late 19th century. I mean, he calls Melanchthon really the father of both Lutheran and Reformed systematic theology, which I think is actually completely accurate because he gives the basic method about how they do uh, dogmatics based on this rhetorical um, criticism method that you get from Rudolf Agricola. So. Okay, so um, we're going to really get on to the next thing. Kind of entering into um, specifically the, the uh, article chapter, I guess, that you contributed to the book, Aquinas Among the Protestants. Um, you talk of a, about a Lutheran scholastic um, after Melanchthon, shortly after Melanchthon, I consider him kind of one of the early first ones, Jan Gerhard. And uh, tell us a little, I guess, biographical stuff about Jan Gerhard, just to get us, I guess, kind of started off with, with the discussion on him that we'll be getting into. Right, yeah. Um, but I mean, this is the funny thing. I mean, they, they actually, CPH actually published, um, or the Concordia Publishing House published uh, a book that I read a few years ago about the, the lives of the great Lutheran scholastics and their lives aren't that interesting. They, what they do is they move around a lot. Um, they get sick a lot and then they get married a lot. Right. So that's a, what they do. No, <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, very exciting then about his personal life as you're saying. Right. <laughs> right. They, right. They get sick because, you know, it's, it's early modern Europe and they, you know, there's all these communicable diseases floating around all the time. And usually they have some kind of religious sort of conversion or, they deepen their faith or something like that when they're sick. Um, and then their wives keep on dying in childbirth. And they also marry like wives that are way too, by our standards, way too young for them. Um, so, I mean, that's basically it. So his family, um, they're, um, uh, they live in Saxony. They are not nobles, but they're pretty wealthy and have a nice kind of estate. And he's born and studies at this Latin school and, um, Again, he has several childhood illnesses, the culmination of which are that he, well, for one thing, he's under the, the pastoral care of this guy, uh, Johann Ernst, who wrote a book called True Christianity. He's sort of a proto-pietist, um, this sort of movement you get in late 17th century uh, Lutheranism and, and the reform circles too, which emphasizes kind of the interior piety. And um, uh, actually um, the pietist movement starts when uh, uh, Spener um, is writing a, um, a treatise, actually, or an introductory essay for true Christianity. So there's a connection here. So but anyways, he's under the pastoral care of this guy, Johann Arendt, and he then gets inspired to be a, uh, a theologian. And for a while, after he goes off to college at uh, Wittenberg and some other places, he becomes a doctor. Actually, he starts practicing medicine, but then he realized he gets sick again, of course. And then he redoubles his efforts, essentially, to become a theologian. And uh, then when he's age 23, he gets his doctorate and everything by age 22 or 23 years old, 
And um, he's such an academic superstar. They, um, uh, this Duke in uh, Heldberg uh, makes him into um, uh, the superintendent um, at age 23, right? And um, he's, uh, uh, which is basically in, in German Lutheran lingo, he's bishop essentially, right, at age 23. So, um, and uh, he has a first wife, um, who again, he, he, who he marries at age 25 and who's 13, right? So like I said, these are marriages we would not think are appropriate at all. Uh, one, by the way, one later Lutheran scholastic, um, Quinstead was married four times, married a 19 year old at age 72. So, Lord. anyways, um, uh, right. Eventually, so eventually, um, he becomes professor at Jena, um, the, the, the Duke thought he was doing such a, a fantastic job. He um, wouldn't let him go. Uh, and eventually he was able to kind of make his escape. But right. So his first wife, she dies and then he gets remarried and then he moves to Jena and then he's professor there for the rest of his life. And uh, he wrote all kinds of biblical, he had an estate there. He was actually independently wealthy, uh, wrote all kinds of biblical treatises, uh, wrote um, a 32 volume systematic theology. Okay. So that's, and the number, sure, numbers of sources of these are actually quite amazing. This, it's not like you had IOL back then. Um, I don't even know how he got all the sources to write this, frankly. And he wrote a bunch of apologetic works. He was very, very concerned with um, fighting against the Counter-Reformation, and a lot of the Counter-Reformation apologists in particular, uh, Robert Bellarmine, a very famous um, uh, uh, saint, who actually became a saint, a very famous Catholic uh, Apologist, and every single page of his systematic theology is writing against this guy, um, Robert Bellarmine, who's one of the who's sort of the premier apologist of the Counter Reformation. So he was very interested in not only sort of debunking Catholic claims, but also arguing for the Catholicity of Lutheranism, saying trying to find things in the early church which would, in some sense, validate um, Lutheran theological emphases. Um, anyways. So uh, that's kind of his life. I mean, I guess it, it, towards the end, you could say it was kind of tragic. His, he ended up, his, a lot of his property ended up being destroyed by Gustavus Adolphus's uh, troops during the Thirty Years' War. And, Ooh, I did not. Um, right. And for for listeners, um, hell, just go on Wikipedia, the Thirty Years' War. It is one of the most terrible things to read about, I guess. I mean, this. Yeah, it's very bad, man. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, in fact, that I'd be interested in. I mean, you could make a movie, you could make a Netflix series out of the Thirty Years' War, and uh, it, it, even uh, my, myself, I even after we end this podcast tonight, I kind of want to go just just do some little research on that. Um, but I did not know that about Young Gerhard. Um, so on the topic of Young Gerhard, um, you know, a big thing about the Reformation was about going back to the early church um, is about going back to the early church. I mean, especially the Bible. I mean, but uh, you know, you don't have to look far into works of Luther works of Melanchthon, Chemnitz. Uh, they, they, they cite patristic early church fathers. And uh, you know, they want to go back to the early church before the corruption, quote unquote. But why did Gerhard seek? And I don't know if you've, written specifically on this but it, why do you feel i guess uh jack that gerhardt's uh he, he sought to engage the medieval tradition 
Uh, well, I mean, a couple of different reasons. I mean, um, um, for one thing, if you are a Calvinist or a Lutheran, you can't have this sort of attitude that you get in these different Christian primitive movements that you have in uh, the United States. For, so, like, for example, the Campbellite movement or something like those, or Seventh-day Adventists. The, the idea that the church simply disappeared and then we're restoring it doesn't work. Uh, the claim of both Luther and Calvin was never that the church had disappeared. Um, and, and with their doctrine of grace, that would be impossible because if God creates faith monergistically through in the elect, okay, then he's always been doing it. Okay. Now the elect, the, the empirical church might have an awful lot of errors, um, but it's the core of the teaching can never go away. And indeed, um, Luther again never claimed that the Catholic Church wasn't part of the true church. He just said, you know, there's just a lot of bad stuff going on in it. So um, the claim uh, of the Catholic opponents was, how, how then can you really be serious? What you're teaching is absolute innovation. And so starting with Melanchthon, there is an attempt at trying to find precedents for Lutheran teaching in the history of the church uh, to validate the, the point that there is a Catholicity. Lutheran, Lutheranism is simply a, a continuation of the, the best aspects of the Catholic tradition, which again, it would be consistent with the doctrine of grace. Uh, the other aspect of it, the reason he uses someone like, for example, Thomas Aquinas, which he, who he quotes quite frequently and very positively as well, or a whole host of other medieval theologians, is because, like I said, um, uh, the earlier tradition provides models which he thinks that he can utilize, which, and again, the, the reformers never thought any of this stuff was bad. Their issue was with the doctrine of grace, which then had implications for the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the sacraments. But they generally thought everything else was okay. So, um, okay. so um, why not? You know, why reinvent the wheel? Why not go back and you know use some of these models, um, which are all kind of pretty kind of ready made. Right. So, um, but I remember, I mean, going back to the class I took with you on all this stuff on on the era of Protestant classicism, um, era. I didn't say error. I said era. <laughs> um, there's similarity and difference between what these the second and third and fourth generations of Lutheran and Reformed Protestant scholasticians are doing in the 17th century. There's similarity with what they're doing in the medieval age, and there's also difference. And from several authors, uh, I think, I'm thinking of Peter Rowendale, um, they know a similarity in the method, scholasticism, but a difference in the content. Mm. Want to speak uh, a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, um, he uses the, the kind of the, the the scholastic methodology of asking, you know, uh, does it exist? What sort of thing is it, and so forth. Um, um, uh, and, and all that kind of thing. But um, then, of course, he also, um, he and, of course, the other process classics uh, are usually utilizing also, you know, humanistic methods of rhetorical um, criticism of very sort of deep sort of, you know, word studies and, th and things like this. Um, they're interested, they're more interested in studying the, the literal word of the Bible, I think, than the medieval classics are. They are very focused on the census literalis, uh, there's the literal sense of scripture uh, in accordance with uh, with Luther's early emphasis um, that he transitions into 
uh, during the Psalms commentaries of 15, uh, 13 through 15, 15. Um, though interestingly enough, with, with Gerhard, uh, there, is an, in, there is actually a, still a, a strong interest in typological interpretation of scripture. You can mention that, I could mention that. Uh, he doesn't go for allegorical interpretation, but it's very typological, very, very heavily, uh, very, very heavy typological interpretation of scripture. So, uh, so like I say, it's a kind of interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, what do you mean by typological? Uh, by that, um, certain things in scripture um, symbolically sort of um, prefigure other things, right? So, uh, he'll say things like. Um, Remember in the story of Samson, the, the honey and the lion? Remember, so he kill, he, he gives, you know, at the wedding feast, he gives them that. He, he finds, well, earlier in the story, he, he finds a lion with a, a beehive, a dead lion who has a beehive in him. And so he sticks his hand in and he takes out honey and eats the honey while he goes. And then he offers this, at, at his wedding feast, then he offers this riddle um, and it's the answer is the honey and the lion, and so the the the, the lion is then the lion of Judah according to Gerhard and a bunch of other Lutheran scholastics, and the honey is the sweetness of salvation. So it's so this is a prefiguration of Christ, the honey and the lion, right? So um, so it's it's stuff like that. So um, which he always you always find some kind of symbolic earlier prefiguration of Christ in the Old Testament things like this. So. Um, it's, and that's and I think that that's actually a really big contrast with um, a lot of modern conservative Protestants who see themselves in in ways of being kind of continuations of Protestant scholasticism, but I don't think would be very comfortable with a lot of these um, ways of reading the Bible actually. So, but anyways, well, why not? Because um, the modern. I mean, they're um, in many cases they're kind of anti-modern modernists. Uh, they want scripture to be like a kind of grab bag of um, propositional information that's just sort of laid out in a kind of dry fashion and um, typological readings. I think they would see them as kind of fanciful. I mean, in the same way that other modern people would tend to, um, they don't appreciate things like this. So. And I, when I was listening to your description of what a typological interpretation means, uh, it seemed to me like the good parts of allegorical and not the bad parts. Um, well, it's 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 um, it's uh, based on time, not on we might say distance. I mean, with allegorical interpretation, what you're trying to do is say that some earthly event you're trying to read past the external meaning of the text to some kind of higher spiritual reality beyond it, right? So with typological, you're saying that uh, the work that in the concrete, you're not reading past the text exactly. You're just saying that one part of the text prefigures another. And so um, since there's one triune God who's the agent behind the, the text and the history that it's witnessing to, that different parts of... Um, Salvation history sort of rhyme, so to speak. So, um, so I think that there is actually a significant difference between typological and allegorical interpretation. Yeah, definitely a difference. And I am, and, and for any listeners interested, I, I recently read Ian Ian Paul. Yes, Ian Paul, who's a Church of England evangelical Anglican. He wrote something about a month ago about. Uh, 
you know, a, a kind of, I guess, against allegorical interpretation of the Bible. I found it very, very interesting. I think I posted it on my personal Facebook uh, profile. Uh, but he, it's a Greek word, fascizo, um, uh, fascizo, that he, yeah, he put this on. And um, I just found it interesting. In case you're, if you're wondering what the allegorical interpretation of the Bible means, he kind of lays it out there. It was kind of a, it became very commonplace in the medieval era. The reformers uh, push, pushed back against that in many, many ways for a, uh, of course, that could hell, we could make a whole other episode about that because I know uh, um, Dr. Kokris himself here has done some work on that and uh, about uh, the, the way the reformers interpreted uh, scripture in, in, in the quote unquote, the plain sense in contrast to what was happening in the medieval ages. Um, but, but I think there's certain great things to take out of the allegorical interpretation. And I feel like the typological interpretation that Jack talked about Gerhard and people like that doing, I, I kind of like, I, I feel, I don't I feel like Gerhard and them, they, they kind of took the good part. What was good that allegorists were kind of doing, but didn't go to the lengths that they did. Um, now, uh, I guess we really need to get into the meat of your chapter. So Gerhard has a treatment of Thomas Aquinas. Where is he with in this chapter you wrote, Jack, for um, the, the way Gerhard um, employs what Aquinas did? Where is Gerhard with Aquinas, and but and I'll preface this for for everyone listening. Uh, Thomas Aquinas um, <laughs> is a Protestant show. We're talking about Thomas Aquinas. Yes, Thomas Aquinas is kind of the uh, the key. I don't know how I would say it. Jack Price better words for this, but um, kind of the theologian. He's the equivalent of what Luther is to Lutheranism. He's the, <laughs> Aquinas is the equivalent to Roman Catholicism. Of what I mean, he's the official. The, the official He's the teacher of the church, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um and I like some Aquinas. I I've I've read I haven't read all his his works, but I, I, I like some Aquinas. But Gerhard, this early Lutheran scholastic theologian, remember we're talking about the second and third generations after Luther, who start getting really scholastic about Protestant faith. He employs none other than Thomas Aquinas. Where, Jack, is Gerhard with Aquinas, and where is he not with Aquinas? If you want to take however long you want to on that. I mean, he utilizes him quite a bit in um, his Trinitarian theology. He likes Aquinas' idea of God as the person of the Trinity being made of subsisting relations. Um, He also, um, in his sections on natural theology, um, utilizes him, and he basically takes over, Aquinas has five, uh, proofs of God's existence. And um, also being another Aristotelian theologian, Gerhard finds these very convivial and um, has, has a kind of a modified version of them, but basically accepts the same um, uh, proofs of God's existence. Um, the interesting thing that, that I primarily dealt with in my article was the question of, of how he's receiving uh, Thomas Aquinas's doctrine, what's called the analogy of being. And the analogy of being is the idea that God is being proper, like he exists, he is the most real thing there is, essentially. He's reality itself, actually. He's not just the most, he is reality itself. 
And creatures that have their being in a, from him as, their, as his creatures based um, on his archetypal reality, okay? So that, um, so I may uh, be wise, okay? I mean, I'm not saying I'm wise, but I'm just saying I could have, potentially have that quality within me, um, but God is wisdom itself. So, um, so when we, so then this also has a um, linguistic component to it as well. So, how do we talk about God? If I say that God is wise, do I mean he's wise like I am, or wise like my grandma is, or something like that? Um, well, no, because that would tear him down to our level, and so that wouldn't be very fitting. On the other hand, I want to be able to say things about God, like say that he's wise. The Bible says he's wise, right? So how do I say that without tearing him down to this creaturely level? If I said he was just his wisdom was like so totally different from our wisdom that we couldn't say anything. About it. Well, then I would say nothing about God at all. And how would I praise God or talk about Christian doctrine or do anything? Um, so what Aquinas says is that because when God created the world, he made um, uh, he made creation in a way that expressed him. So that it, it so that it was kind of a um, uh, image of his eternal goodness and being and so forth. Uh, so that um, because creation is derivative and because it's it's a finite archetype of his archetypal reality, um, creatures can use words that they apply to other creatures in relationship to God as long as they realize that they're analogical. Um, there's a similarity between God and his creation, but then there's also an infinite dissimilarity. So that we can say, we use realistic language about God while simultaneously not dragging him down to our level. Now, uh, Gerhard thinks that this is bad, but what he's rejecting is very interesting. What he's rejecting is a concept of analogy, which is used by early modern Thomists that you find, for example, in Cardinal Cajetan, Archaeton, but some people were not said that either way, and then a guy named Francisco Suarez. And what they want to say is analogy isn't that God is properly kind of what his creatures are kind of in a derivative sense, but that God is an infinite version of what creatures are in a finite sense. It's called analogy proportion. And what that means is that God ends up being just an infinitely, he's not a certain, he's not ultimate reality itself. Rather, he is, he's real in the same way that we are essentially, but you just multiply it an infinite amount of times. So, um, this is very similar to the, uh, how it's developed is very similar to um, the idea of, of the idea of uh, the univalicity of being. Um, the univalicity of being is the, is the belief first proposed by uh, uh, John Don Scotus in the uh, late 13th and early 14th century that um, being can be univocally predicated of God and creatures. So God is just a bigger version of what creatures are. Now, actually, Scotus doesn't teach that exactly. Um, people who are Thomists attribute that position to him. Uh, but that is actually a position that, end, that people end up taking on later on in the 17th century. Uh, Suarez would be one of the people who would be responsible for that idea. And um, this results in what uh, the uh, German philosopher Martin Heidegger has sometimes referred to as ontotheology, where God is no longer being itself, but a being who then um, becomes kind of subject to human criticisms. So in a variety of different ways that modernity has sort of tried to, 
as they say, discredit the idea of God. Um, anyways. All right. Um, so, uh, what, we're going to pivot to a new thing. So, you've given us so much great discussion on this show, and I want to thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll put a little add in for people who want to learn more about this. You can always enroll as a non-degree student. I'm not going to say anything farther than that because I'm not on the admission boards of Institute of Lutheran Theology. But uh, his he teaches a course pretty regularly, right, mm-hmm. on Protestant classicism. And you really dive into depth into this subject matter. I'm uh, kind of curious what... You know, for further reading for some of our listeners, um, what are some of the current scholars and voices in the research of this Protestant scholasticism? I, we mentioned Richard Muller, but who are some? Yeah, he, is, he is the gold standard. Yeah. So Richard Muller, that's it. Read some Richard Muller. <laughs> no, really, I, I, uh, I, you know, and I'm ashamed to say this, as much as I loved this class I took under Jack, I have not uh, delved into Richard Muller's works myself, other than how he was sourced and cited by Jack and some of the, I guess, the course textbooks that we would have had in your class. Um, I, I, did he contribute to any of those? I'm, I'm sure he did. Um, I don't think I, don't think I assigned. Um... Where's Richard Muller at? Is he... Is he a... Uh, he, he was at Calvin uh, uh, Seminary, so, um, but he uh, retired, so he's okay. he's writing things still, so. So he's kind of the authority on this, and kind of... Um, uh, right, well, yeah, for reformed people in particular, but he does do uh, some Lutheran people. He's actually an ex-Lutheran. Um, uh, Robert Preuss uh, wrote a not-as-good couple of books about this too. Robert Price is a Lutheran theologian um, and church bureaucrat. Uh, <laughs> church bureaucrat. I love it. Robert Price, uh, for, I mean, our Lutherans will know Preusses. There's a Price in every Lutheran church probably. Um, Robert Price, I really enjoy uh, Robert Price's work on this. I totally blanked on that. Robert Price, uh, he had a brother who was the president of the Missouri Synod, I believe. He had a first cousin. And his cousin was the president then of the um, American Lutheran Church simultaneously. David Preuss, right? And there's some Preuss now. I know some. Richard Preuss was the was the president of my college when I graduated. So. Okay, um, we're we're doing really inner Lutheran talk um, right now. But yes, Robert Preuss wrote a couple volumes, I believe, on theology post Reformation. Yeah. He wrote a couple volumes on this whole era. Uh, Concordia published it. Um, and really, I mean, I totally blanked on Robert Preuss, Jack, but I, I think his works were probably the most helpful. He, he almost sold it in a narrative fashion, a very balanced way of, of approaching what the classic would do, you know, off, you know, sympathizing with what they were doing. But I didn't get the sense that he was, you know, oh, this is this is the Holy Scripture itself. You know, I, I really liked how he approached the topic. And he was really very much an expert on what these uh, people did in that era. And so, so Jack, what's, um, you probably weren't expecting this, but what's next for you? What are you, what's your, your, 
uh, current reason? What, what are you working on right now? Oh, uh, well, I um, just um, published um, Treatise on Scripture, uh, Professional Lutheran Dogmatics on Holy Scripture. So that just came out. I completed writing um, a book about the doctrine of justification. It's kind of a hybrid systematic uh, historical work. So called Justification by the Word. Um, and I've also been commissioned to write a one-volume Lutheran Dogmatics, which I'm currently doing research for. I'm researching it and also for my um, Christian apologetics course in the, in the spring. So, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. You're a busy guy. Um, I thank you. For, I, I couldn't have thought of a better first episode for this podcast. And oh. I, I guarantee you, Jack, we we have a few followers on Twitter. I got some some people in these these weird Anglican subcultures of you know, and uh, mm. and some Lutherans too that are already following the Twitter. We made a Twitter page. We made a Facebook page. Look for Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant theology podcast. Um, so we have somewhat of a social media presence. I think it's going to grow. I, I really think we're going to get people that are interested in this stuff. I mean, this is not stuff you hear in a lot of other whatever podcast. I mean, anything. And so I think... Uh, people are going to be very interested. And for, for I could not have thought of a better person to bring on for our first episode. So, Jack, thank you so much. Um, yeah, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, being a student of yours again in the future. Uh, we will see when that happens. Um, as for our next show, in January, we have Ben Madison lined up. He is an Episcopal priest in New Jersey. He's a contributor to Mockingbird. Uh, with, you will hear more about Mockingbird, but you can go ahead and visit Mockingbird if you would like. I don't know if it's Mockingbird.com or .net or whatever it is, but if you Google Mockingbird, maybe type in Mockingbird space theology and you will definitely find them. David Zoll is, I think, the uh, one of the main, maybe the chief editor, I don't know, his official role. Uh, but it's definitely a, a very uh, good voice I think we have uh, currently. And so uh, he's a contributor on there and you'll be joining Ben Madison will be joining us to talk about the law and the gospel in the Anglican tradition. Many of our listeners, especially our Lutheran ones, that, that's common uh, vernacular. That's, that's very much a Lutheran uh, uh, way of, of seeing things, the pillars of law and gospel, but uh, there is an Anglican tradition of it as well. And Ben Madison will be joining us uh, for that. Episcopal priest, um, very hands-on, practical theologian type. And uh, we look forward to that. So thank you so much, Jack. Um, and we would love to have you on again in the future. This was right. a light for me. Um, and thank you. So God right. bless you. And uh, for our listeners, stay tuned for the next. We, we, uh, this may be monthly, but we may be throwing some more frequency in between the months, depending on how, uh, how things work out. God bless. And you have a wonderful night. Thank you, Jack, so much. No problem. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Yes. 
Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.